In case you were not aware, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I wanted Gino to share, first of all, so you could be praying for him and understanding of what he's doing in serving, so that you might be challenged personally to get involved in participating with him in that ministry, and uh, to be thinking about what God has for you. In your bulletin, you'll see an insert as it talks about Sanctity of Human Life, and uh, just something to encourage you with and to remind you um, as we pray for the preborn, as we pray for those in the womb, and as we seek to do what we can. Uh, to protect them, and uh, so thank you, Gino, for sharing, and if you have questions, please talk to him and, and see what he, what he can do to encourage you in that way. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 18, page 123, if you're using a Bible provided, there's one uh, under a chair in the row in front of you, and as we think about uh, sanctity of human life, we have prayed for the Pregnancy Resource Center. We support them on a regular basis uh, out of the regular giving of our church. But as you leave today, there's some baby bottles out in the foyer right on, the, on a table there. And that is for a special offering for the Pregnancy Resource Center. We do this every year in conjunction with Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Take a bottle, take it home, fill it with change, put a check in it, put cash in it, whatever, and bring it back and we'll get it to them. And uh, you have about six weeks. Most of you don't need six weeks, but if you need six weeks, take it. If you want to take more than one bottle, do that. If you can't fill them all, just do what you can, bring them back, and uh, we want to support them in a major way as we can. It was 50 years ago today, on January 22, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the decision, decisions on Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Those historic decisions made it possible for babies to be murdered legally in all 50 states. Since that decision, there have been over 63 million babies murdered that we know about. Yet, praise God, on June 24th, 2022, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. What a great and glorious day that was, and we thank God for a just and righteous ruling. Yet, it must be seen as just a partial victory as the legality of murdering children was simply returned to the states and whatever laws the state wished to enact. And we here in Michigan saw just how quickly, in less than five months, that victory could be wiped away as a clear majority of the citizens of this state voted for the legalization of child sacrifice on November 8th, 2022. So here in the state of Michigan, it wasn't just nine judges imposing a ruling. It was 2,480,000 Michiganders voting for it. God have mercy on our souls. So what does that say about us? What does that mean for our future here in this state if there is not repentance? We want to look to God's word to find out these answers. And so let's pray together before we do. Father, it is a heavy weight that we bear in bringing forth the truth from your word. So I pray for your strength. I pray for your wisdom. I pray for you to speak clearly through me in a way that would glorify you, in a way that would change hearts and lives, save souls today. And so, Lord, we cry out our need for you to open ears, to open eyes, to soften hearts, to receive the truth. That souls may be changed. That souls may be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in Leviticus 18, verse 1. We started there the last three weeks, and we keep starting there because this is, in a sense, the beginning of a three-chapter section on the judicial law of God. And so it says in verse 1, follow along as I read it, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you, you shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not follow. Uh, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Then go down to verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This is his word. This is the Lord speaking. This is not me speaking. I'm reading to you what he says. May we listen to him this morning. The theme of this morning's message is Iron Age morality is still relevant today. So we've had the same theme for three weeks. Iron Age morality is still relevant. We're in a third sermon on our series on Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. These laws here in these three chapters, as I said before, are mainly judicial law, which means they are the specific explanation and application of the moral law of the Ten Commandments in detail. Many people are familiar with the Ten Commandments, even from the Scripture. Everyone is familiar with the Ten Commandments because God has imprinted them on their heart since they were conceived. And so they have a concept, not just a concept of right and wrong, but a very specific concept of the things you should not do, things that are wrong, things that are evil. But how does that play out? How does that play out in specific detail? God is gracious to us to not just give us the general categories of what not to do. He gives us very good specificity of not what to do and what to do, but also the just penalty for those who violate. So the Bible, like I said last week, is far better than you think. It's far better than you think. It is far more detailed than you realize. It is far greater, and we need to understand it and live it out as we get to what it means to live as God's people in the land. So we're going to jump in, in verse 22, where, I'm sorry, verse 21, it should be 1821, I said 22 in your notes, but I was wrong, it should be 21, we just read it, and just read it, and that gives us the law against child sacrifice. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so pray in the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. This is the law against child sacrifice. What it means here is that God is telling us something that he did not say in the Ten Commandments specifically. In the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not murder. What does murder look like? Here is one example of murder. It is child sacrifice. Child sacrifice is one of the murders God's law forbids. What does it mean here to offer your child to Molech or offer your children? To offer your child to Molech was to sacrifice them on the altar of Molech. So Molech was an Amorite god that was worshipped by sacrificing children, either by burning them to death before the altar, or at least devoting their children to it through some fiery ceremony. So either you would take your child to Molech and, and, and lay, and the idea is that Molech was a, was a god uh, made of, of bronze or, or, or gold or whatever, and, and this god had its hands out like this, and they would heat up the hands of Molech, and they would come and lay their children on Molech's hands and give their child to Molech, and they would burn them to death. That's what it meant to offer your child to Molech. That's one way. It could be that there was some sort of fiery ceremony whereby children were devoted to Molech and they didn't die. And so there's a couple ways of looking at that, but history is absolutely clear that there were children killed to Molech. Sacrifice. It did happen. Sacrifice of children did happen. It's also noted in history that these deadly worship ceremonies, drums and chants were used to drown out, drown out the cries of the dying infants. So... Why did they do this? Well, the motivation behind this was the earning of good fortune for all the rest of the children in their family. Through the giving of offspring, you would have power to have even more offspring. Kill your child to increase your fertility. 
kill your child not only to increase your fertility and grow your family, but add blessings so that the children that you have will be blessed and your family will be blessed. It just takes one child. Now, this is so grossly unnatural in the sense that it is, it is an overturning of the natural motherly affection for her child. It goes against the natural affection that a man has for his own offspring. So just think about the mentality of people that would commit such a heinous act. How badly, how badly must they have sought the wanted promised benefits from that God to do such a heinous thing? And so the people of the land are in constant search for the blessing of the gods, a desperate attempt to earn the favor they so deserve. And when we are desperate, we will do terrible things in our desperation. We must recognize that. We must recognize that truth about ourselves, not just about others. Now, some try to make the case that these actions forbidden here are only sinful because of their connection to idolatry. So the case is made this way. Israel was forbidden to worship Molech, and that is what is forbidden. So this is a sin. So, so, so the idea is it's, it's wrong because it's idolatrous. You don't worship Molech, so you don't do these sacrifices because it is idolatrous. And the thought would then be, so would this be a sin when done in worship only to a false god? What if you murder your child as an atheist? Is that a sin? What if you sacrifice your child on the altar of your own desires, the kind of life you want to live? Is that allowed in God's law, or is it just this idolatrous example? So the idea here is if it's just idolatry, then if we remove the idol, we okay the practice. Hopefully you see the, the foolishness of that thinking. The point of this is that it is an inescapable truth that every people group and every person has God or gods that they serve as their ultimate authority. Your religious authority determines your morality, which determines your laws. So those who proclaim religious neutrality or atheism are lying to themselves and to you. Their God is themselves, and since they self-determine right and wrong, they can tell, they can call the preborn child a baby when they intend to keep the child. Listen carefully. They call it a baby when they intend to keep the child, but when they plan to murder the child, it is a fetus or a clump of cells, simply a pregnancy that can be terminated for any and all reasons or absolutely no reason at all. And the reason they can do that is because that's what gods do. Gods determine right and wrong. They determine circumstances, and they get to determine their morality, and they can change their mind at any time because they are God. So when a mother or a father says, we're having a baby, and it's only been, uh, the baby is about two months old, just found out it's a baby, and everybody in the culture does what? Celebrates. We have a culture that is so focused on self-determination that when we have a pregnancy and a baby is conceived, if we're going to keep the child, it's a baby, it's a boy, it's a girl, and we light off candles and explosions and rockets and, and uh, gender reveal stuff because we're so excited. But if that same baby in the womb is not wanted, then it is not a baby at all. It is a clump of cells. It is a fetus. It is something else, and it can just be terminated because we're not terminating a baby. In that instance, we're terminating a pregnancy. And you say, how can they live with that inconsistency? How can they live with that hypocrisy? They live with that because they have determined that they are God and there is no God above them. There is no God below them. They are in charge. And so they get to determine moment to moment what they think about it. 
That is the fact that there is always a religious motivation to all of these actions and to the laws behind it because they have set a God up in place of the one true God, and the God is themselves. So they determine right and wrong and make the laws that suit their own fancy at their whim. And they don't have to be consistent because gods don't have to be consistent because they're God. Now, we know that the one true God is absolutely consistent. But in their false theology and false worship, they don't need consistency because when you're God, you determine everything. It's kind of like the dad at home. It's my house, I set the rules. Well, that's not consistent. I don't care. It's my house, I set the rules. I don't have to be consistent. It's not really true. You should be consistent, but you're still in charge. So we get that on a, on a basic level of that kind of thinking, but notice how far it goes in idolatry. Yet the Ten Commandments make it clear that idolatry is not just a sin for the people of God. Notice that in the moral law of God, idolatry is set forth as sin. You must worship Yahweh. Who must worship Yahweh? Every person must worship Yahweh. What if someone doesn't worship Yahweh and they're an Ammonite or a Moabite? Or a Russian? Is it just the Jewish people that must worship Yahweh? No, it's a Ten Commandment. It's part of the moral law for all people for all time. That is the law. And so therefore, idolatry for any people group is idolatry for them as well as the Jewish people. It's still a sin. It's a sin for any and all people for all time. And murder is a sin for any and all people for all time. And that commandment is written on every human heart. Everyone knows that murdering a child in the womb is wrong. And that truth is evidenced in the guilt and shame that inevitably come afterward. So that's the law given. Now let's go to Leviticus chapter 20 and see the punishment for child sacrifice. Leviticus 20 verses 1 through 5, the punishment for child sacrifice. So it's very just one verse. You cannot offer your child to Molech. Now in chapter 20, he goes into greater detail. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do it all close their eyes to that man who gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. The punishment for child sacrifice. Notice before we get specifically to the punishment, the first thing you see in verse 1 is that it's a law for the land applied to everyone living in the land. It applies to the strangers who sojourn, not just to the people of God. The reason for that is that pluralism is not allowed by God. It doesn't matter if you worship Yahweh, if Yahweh is your God. Murder is not a religious liberty issue. Hear me carefully, because there are Christians, even evangelical Christians, who will then come to a law like has been passed, Proposition 3, in, in Michigan which is supported by various religious groups and religious people who will say, this decision is between a mother and her doctor, a mother and her whatever, and they will say, it's a religious liberty issue. You don't want anyone telling you what to do with your body. Why would you tell someone else what to do with their body? It's a religious liberty issue. That is a perversion of God's law because murder is not an issue of liberty for the mother. 
It's an issue of liberty for the child. So this is not a religious liberty issue. If we don't allow them to murder children in the womb, they won't allow us to worship God on Sunday. And so therefore, if we want one, we should give them the other. No, murder is not a religious liberty issue, no matter what prescribed religion you have. Muslim, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, uh, atheist, it doesn't matter. Murder is murder and should be dealt with by any civil society with the death penalty. We'll get to that in a minute. And so there's no room for pluralism where, well, this group can't murder their children because they have that religious law, but that group can, and we should have a society that allows people to choose religiously. That's perversion. And there are evangelical Christians who are, who are confusing God's people with trying to heighten the religious liberty issue over the clear law of God. Do not buy the perversion of that. So, it's always murder. Who says so? Pastor Fields? No, Yahweh does. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, the penalty for child sacrifice is given clearly here. The penalty for child sacrifice is death. It's death. Notice that this is a civil penalty. This is for the people of the land. It is for the nation to carry out. Now, the method isn't the main point, but stoning was considered the worst form of capital punishment for the Jews. Stoning is a horrible death. The Romans thought that sacrifice, uh, uh, crucifixion was the worst death. Jews felt that stoning was the worst death. Worst death. But what I want to point out of the fact here is what I believe might be behind why God chose stoning as the penalty because he gives a capital punishment penalty for other sins but doesn't dictate the exact method. But I believe it's stoning for a couple reasons. Stoning required the hands of many people in putting the murderer to death. Notice carefully, it is one thing to accuse someone of a crime that leads to them getting the electric chair but even if you are making a false accusation, the person is put to death either by hanging, by decapitation, by electric chair. It is not the accuser who puts their hand to the, to the punishment. But in this, the accuser and those who have the evidence are a part not only of the, the adjudication of, of the penalty, but they're also taking part and they have a hand in the just punishment. And that brings with it a weight of responsibility that's, that's not something our society has seen for a very long time. That's what I believe why God is doing this. It requires many people. It requires the activity of a group. Because God wants the people of the land, the nation, the civil society, to all put their hands to the justice that is required. That brings a weight of responsibility. And notice also, God does not leave justice in the hands of man alone. It is a civil penalty, but God does not leave it to civil society alone. Notice, if the people of the land will not carry out God's justice, what does he say in verse 3? I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. If the people of the land will not carry out God's justice, God will be sure to take care of it himself. I myself. He emphasizes the personal response by saying, I will do it. I myself will do it. I will put my hand to putting that man to death. Now, I also want you to see what is sometimes missed. Notice that it's male pronouns throughout this entire section. Who's held responsible for the murder of children in Molech worship? The man is, the husband, the father. Would the women have not been involved? I'm sure they would have been. But notice who's held most responsible, husbands and fathers. 
Now, our civil society has taken that decision out of the hands of husbands and fathers and allowed mothers alone to make these decisions at a certain level. But men, we are responsible, and uh, God holds us responsible. Now, notice why God will respond this way. Because. Because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. This act defiles the sanctuary of God. Well, how does that work? It's when someone who's committed this great wickedness would go from offering their child to Molech to later on entering into the synagogue, entering into the, the tabernacle to worship Yahweh. We've just committed the act of child sacrifice to Molech, and now we walk into the, the, the tabernacle of Yahweh to worship. And this person with this wicked crime and their history uh, profanes the temple, defiles God's sanctuary. They walk in as if they had done nothing wrong, as if Yahweh didn't know, as if Yahweh wouldn't do anything about it. And it not only defiles the sanctuary, it profanes the holy name of God. He is the God of these people. When we act in such a uh, wicked way, we profane his name. We take the name of Yahweh, what is holy, and we make it common. We make it look like Yahweh is just one God among many gods. It puts Yahweh on equal footing with the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. What can those gods do? They can't put a murderer to death. They can't do anything. And neither can Yahweh. We can live as we please, and Yahweh will do nothing about it. Or won't he? He will. He will. Again, in the punishment given here in the way it's described in great detail, there appears to be something especially heinous about this crime. This is a premeditated, horrific evil that demonstrates the wicked hardness of heart that makes this action even thinkable or possible. Recently, maybe you've seen this, Lure TV came out with a four or five minute video called The Procedure. I think you can still find it on YouTube. Uh, maybe not, maybe they removed it. This is a video depicting what specifically happens in abortion. And it is excruciating to watch. I would not show that to children of elementary age for sure. It's disturbing on every level. And the fact that people are aware of this information and make this wicked choice anyway demonstrates a grave hardness of heart. And it is terrible. And I believe the penalty is, is, is in connection to the heinousness of the crime. Now notice the penalty, letter D, the penalty for not assessing God's penalty. So here we see something interesting. It's mentioned in other contexts, but it's mentioned explicitly and specifically here. Verse 4, and if the people of the land do it all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will not just set his face against that man, but against the man who doesn't do anything about it, against that man and against his clan, and will cut them off. Here, there's a penalty given for not assessing God's penalty. If you do not put the murderer to death, you know about the crime, you know the crime has been committed, you know a child has been sacrificed, and you don't do anything, God will hold you accountable and will cut you off and your family off. Notice, there's a penalty for the people of the land if they do not enact God's justice. So Matthew Henry says this, if magistrates will not do justice upon offenders, God will do justice upon them because there is a danger that many will go a-whoring after those who do, but countenance sin by winking at it. And if the sins of leaders be leading sins, it is fit that their punishments should be exemplary punishments. Notice, we might not commit the act, 
but we wink at the wickedness of those who do, and leaders, magistrates, don't follow through on God's justice, God says they will be held accountable for that. And notice it's not just the religious leaders or the civil leaders, it's any man. We are included. There is a seriousness to this kind of sin that brings the weight on the nation, the people, the clan, the family that allow it to go on without causing it to stop. We must see that. We must understand that. Because it's one thing to say, I've never done that or I've never supported or encouraged, I'm, I'm against all that. But when we do nothing as it is going on in our land and in our state, when we sit idly by and just say, well, I'm not doing it, no one I know is doing it, I'm okay. When we know what's going on and we do nothing, we are held accountable. Now, that's the law of God. What about the application to us today? What's the application? We need to understand that we still have Molech worship today. You say, well, I did not see a Molech idol anywhere around lately. No, because the idols that we have now are idols of the heart that are still demonstrated in the same behavior. It's just not done on an altar in the public square. It's done in a medical facility or so-called medical facility with support and protection by the civil government. And that's the place of worship. The abortion mill is a place of Molech worship. It's the place where the high priests of Molech kill children on behalf of personal advantage. The motivation of the Israelites or the motivation of the Ammonites and the Moabites to do these kinds of things is the same motivation today. We are trading our children for personal advantage. We murder our children for our own good. We murder our children with the lie that we will be more fertile more successful, have better families, bigger families, if we were to sacrifice this child now? Have you not heard it? Woman after woman who will talk about their abortion will say, I did it for these reasons. And most of the time, it's a personal advantage and even convincing themselves that they can do this based upon the fact that their family and their children that come later will be better off because this one died. And it didn't just die, it was murdered. I want to say that clearly. So it's the same motivation. It's the same motivation. And we have people dedicating their lives, coming out of medical school with the ex express purpose of being an abortion doctor, of murdering babies in the womb for the rest of their lives. They publicize it. They promote it. They talk about how many. They keep count. Sometimes they take the babies home and keep them in their basement. It's wicked. It's an abomination. It's religious. And it's the same thing happening. It just looks different. But there is no difference. And we still have rulers. We still have people, magistrates, like the kings and queens of, of, of ancient Israel, promoting the same act, doing everything they can to pr protect the act, putting laws in place to anybody who would want to stop the act. It's the same thing. And we think the Old Testament law doesn't apply today because the circumstances are different. Think about it. They're no different. The law applies because it's God's law across the board. And if we do not have God's law in this instance, where in the New Covenant, where in the New Testament did God deal with child sacrifice? 
Where did Jesus talk about child sacrifice? Where did he give the punishment for child sacrifice? Well, he didn't. He didn't have to because the Old Testament covered it clearly. And he keeps the law and fulfills the law, but he doesn't do away with the law. And so it continues. But for our sake and where we find ourselves today, let me bring some specific application. First, we must understand the doctrine of blood guiltiness. We must understand the doctrine of blood guiltiness. We must understand that the blood of the innocent cries out to God. The blood of the innocent cries out to God. Where do we get the first reference to this? We get that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. You are familiar, almost everyone is familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, even if you don't go to church much. And what happened after Cain killed Abel? The Lord comes to Cain, and the Lord said, in Genesis 4, verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What have you done? Your brother's blood is doing what? Crying to me from the ground. The blood of the innocent murdered cries out to God. That's the point. This is the doctrine of blood guiltiness. It goes on. There's other places. I'm only going going to pick a few passages, but I'm trying to lay this out quickly. There's more to be said. But point two, only by the shedding of the blood of the guilty can you cleanse the blood of the innocent. Only by shedding the blood of the guilty can you cleanse the blood of the innocent. The blood soaks into the ground and the blood cries out. How do we... How do we satisfy the cry of the innocent murdered? Well, Numbers 35, 33 through 34, answers the question. Numbers 35, 33 through 34 says this. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. What pollutes the land? Oh, God tells us. For blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So how do you cleanse... The, the, the land from the blood of the murder of the innocent, you put the guilty to death, and the blood of the guilty cleanses the blood of the innocent, and now we're back to square one. That's how you cleanse the land. He goes on to say, you shall not defile, go back, there you, go. you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. I dwell in the midst of the people who dwell in the land that is a nation. When I dwell here, I don't want my land polluted that I dwell in. So cleanse the land. Cleanse the land of the blood of the innocent by putting the guilty to death. And the blood cancels out. Now, turn to Psalm 106. 106. Psalm 106, page 642. Psalm 106 will be there for a little while. We're going to turn to a few places. Hopefully you can handle that. I have great faith in you. Psalm 106, 106. What we find in Psalm 106 is this. We find similar things that we've already seen, but we find this. Pouring out innocent blood and child sacrifice nourishes the demonic realm. Pouring out innocent blood and child sacrifices, sacrifice nourishes the demonic realm. Starting in verse 37. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to... Molech. And when you sacrifice your children to Molech, what are you sacrificing to actually? To a demon. Demons are behind false gods and false worship. They are the animating force behind it. So they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, when they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. 
So to the idols, they're sacrificing to demons. So thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their people, power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Notice that pouring out innocent blood and child sacrifice nourishes the demonic realm. There's a lot to be said here. But we as Baptists sometimes minimize the satanic and demonic realm and its work behind the scenes. Because we don't live in places like Haiti or other places in the, in the, that have ongoing open demonic worship, satanic worship, we don't understand the power because the power that's going on is below the surface and below the seas. We don't see it. But the Bible tells us what it is, and we must understand it. Well, how does it nourish the demonic? Listen carefully. The same demon lies and tells you that what is inside of your womb is not a baby. It lies and says it's a fetus, it's a clump of cells, it's just a pregnancy. The demon lies and says it isn't wrong. Who tells you that it's wrong? There is no God. There's no one to tell you. You can do what you want with your body. It's your body, your choice. That's what the demon says. It says that this is even best for the baby. If you were to take this, bring this baby into the world at this time, at this age, with your finances, with your situation, the baby would be miserable. The baby would be horrible. It would be horrible for the baby. This is what's best. It would be better for the baby to die than to live a terrible life. That's the lie of Satan. It's a demonic lie. It's a lie that women believe. They're told that by the culture, by the society. Who's telling that lie? Demons. Real demons, satanic, evil angels. Now, after you murder your baby, it is the same demon who then lies to you, after the fact, telling you that there is no hope for someone so wicked, that there is no justice for someone who would do such a heinous act, and that the best thing you can do is to just kill yourself as well. So on one end, the demon will lie and say, it's no big deal, you won't have any ramifications, you'll do just fine, and then you murder your child, and you're filled with guilt, you're filled with shame, and that demon says, you might as well just end your life, you are no good, you're a murderer, you're terrible, kill yourself. Satan lies on both ends, and when we murder our children, we nourish that environment. We nourish his power, we proclaim his lies in society, we put them on commercials, we have them spoken by our officials, our magistrates, at every realm of our government. Notice carefully, Satan is a liar, and he has been from the beginning, Genesis 3. Satan is a murderer and has been from the beginning, Genesis 4. Stop believing his lies today. Every human life matters. Every human life matters and is precious in the eyes of God. Listen carefully, including the lives of murderers. So when we say on this church sign is we're, we're out there, every human life matters. We are not just talking about the baby in the womb. We're talking about the murderers who put the baby in the womb to death. Every human life matters. And every human life is precious in the eyes of God, even the life of murderers. We'll get more to that in a minute. But notice, as we saw in Psalm 106, the land that is polluted with blood brings God's judgment on God's people. The land that's polluted with blood brings God's judgment on God's people. 
It's not just on the, the, the Amorites or the Moabites or, or the other people. It's on God's people. And also notice clearly the judgment is that those who hate God's people will rule over them. Listen and watch carefully. The land is polluted. The land cries out for justice. God's people sit silently, though we might not participate for the most part. Some of us have. Some of us have encouraged. Some of us have supported. Some of us have actually committed murder. For the most part, most of us probably have not, but yet we sit silently by, we do nothing, we don't put anything, we don't bring justice, and what happens? We are now ruled by those who hate us. Listen clearly, this is Governor Whitmer. This is our governor. She hates God, and she hates his people, and she has been placed in authority by God as a judgment on us, and it's a judgment that we chose. The people of the state of Michigan have chosen this wicked ruler who hates God and hates his people, and they've chosen to put her in power, and she has, and she will do everything she can to destroy God and his work and his people. And, and I don't say that just because I don't like her or she's of the wrong party or anything like that. I say that based upon what she says and what she does and the very words from her. She has condemned herself. Pay attention. We have God's judgment on us, and it happened before Proposition 3. Proposition 3 is just an outworking of God's greater judgment on us. We were judged already. And I would say this, though not as clearly as I have seen it. I haven't lived in Michigan my whole life, and I've not been paying as much attention to politics my whole life. I would say this. We've been under judgment of God with Republican governors as well as Democrat governors for many decades. So this is not a new thing. We're just seeing it more blatant, more oppressive, and it's continuing And this is a judgment that we chose. We chose by our silence. We chose by our apathy. We chose this judgment. And and the demonic lies have nourished the land of Michigan for decades. And the people that now live here have bought into them by a majority of almost 10%. They believe it. They believe. And the land is nourished. And the land is nourished. The demonic is nourished in the sense that now every lie, every terrible thing, the culture of death pervades across the board. Satan is on the march, and he appears to be winning in every realm because we have nourished it through the blood of our children for almost 50 years. And guess what? With Roe v. Wade, it didn't stop in Michigan, did it? We just kept marching right along, and we made it worse. It's worse now in Michigan than it was in Roe v. Wade. It's God's judgment. Now, up to this point, we've only heard bad news. So you say, I thought I came to church to be encouraged. Boy, this is really uplifting. Well, the good news is, is you had the 30 minutes of great encouragement before I started talking. (laughs) Praising God for all he's done and worshiping God. Wasn't it a great worship service? Man, it's just such a blessing. And then the pastor started talking. Now it's all, it's downhill from there. Now our guilt and the punishment we so richly deserve is clear. The Bible is clear. The bad news is clear. The weight of our sin weighs us down. The guilt of what we have done is crushing. We are faced with the consequences that we, that we have earned with our wickedness. We have earned God's judgment, and we should see it, and we should understand it. We cannot avoid the bad news because the bad news is true. The bad news is in the Bible. We must face it. But God doesn't leave us with bad news. He doesn't stop there. He has more to say. So if you've tuned me out now because you say it's just all bad news, then tune back in. Listen to the good news. We cannot give the good news without understanding the bad news. So many churches will say what I'm about to say, but they'll do it without any context of the bad news. 
And other churches will stop with the bad news, pray where we got right now, just close in prayer and talk about how terrible the world is and how wicked the world is and how we just need to wait for God to come back and return and take us out of this place. But we must preach both the bad news and the good news. We must understand it clearly. We must understand the law of God and the gospel. So in Psalm 106, hopefully you're still there. You didn't close your Bible because we're there. We must understand from the very same psalm that gave the bad news, we must understand the mercy, grace, and abundant steadfast love of God. Look at verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. These wicked people, the people that he judged, his own people, when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So we see the bad news, but we must understand the mercy, grace, and abundant, steadfast love of God. That's what it says in 44 through 48. Same context. If we only preach the mercy and grace and love and forgiveness of God without the context of sin, we do not preach the true gospel. Because that is an affirming gospel that leaves people in their sins because they don't turn from their sins to God. But if we just preach the judgment and wrath of God without the good news that they can be forgiven, then we miss the good news. We preach both. So notice... Notice how this works, Old Covenant and New Covenant. We saw it in Psalm 106. Look in Acts 2. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Acts 2, verses 36 through 38. So Peter, in his first sermon, preaches this to the people of Israel. He preaches to them the worst news they could ever hear. He preaches them the blood guiltiness of the Son of Jesus Christ on them. He says, let the, all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Jerusalem, the blood of the innocent cries out to God, and who's the innocent one that they put to death? Jesus Christ. They killed the Messiah. They killed the Son of God. They shed his blood, and it cries out. And they know the doctrine of blood guiltiness, don't they? They said to Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children because they didn't think they were crucifying, or at least they were confused. They, did, they thought they were crucifying a guilty one. And if you put a guilty one to death, is there any blood on you and your children? No. But instead of killing someone justly, they murdered the innocent one. That's the point that Peter makes in this message. You not only killed an innocent man, you killed the Messiah. You killed the Son of God. Talk about bad news. You think abortion and the murder of the unborn is wicked and terrible? Of course it is. What's worse than that? Killing Jesus Christ? He lays the harshest judgment on anyone he could ever do. There's a huge crowd, over 3,000 people, and he says, you have killed Christ. And he cannot continue any further because when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do with our guilt? What shall we do with our shame? We deserve God's justice. We deserve to die. We have earned the judgment of God for our blood guiltiness. There's, there's nothing left for us but God's judgment. And so what does Peter say to them? He says, too bad. You are judged, you are condemned, and you will spend eternity in the flames of hell. Have a good day. Is that what he says? And what does he say? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for what? 
for the forgiveness of your sins. What sin specifically? He says sins because they had more than one sin. But what's their ultimate sin? They crucified the Lord of glory. You'll be forgiven for that sin and for all your sins. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the guilt of innocent blood on your hands? That will be cleansed and washed away. All you must do is repent and trust in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven. So how can the sin of murder be forgiven? How can the land be cleansed if the blood of the guilty isn't shed? Oh, the Bible's better than you think. Hebrews 9, 22 and 25. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, that might bring a different perspective to you. Why is so much blood shed in the Old Testament? Because the blood of the guilty must be cleansed with the blood of the innocent. So you pick an innocent animal to die in the place of the guilty. But it's more than that because the blood of the guilty shed for the blood of the innocent, if it's murder, it's the life of the very person. So this purification of blood is all throughout the Old Testament. And we understand from that that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That is still true today. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But as it is, but, I love it, don't you? As it is, Jesus Christ has appeared once for all by the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this is where it gets gloriously beautiful. You have to understand the bad news fully to get how gloriously beautiful the good news is. The only innocent one who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the only one who kept the law of God, had no sin, he sheds his blood so that the guilty doesn't have to shed his or her blood. The requirement of the law is met in the shedding of innocent blood, paying for the sin of shedding innocent blood. The innocent one sheds his blood to pay for your crime of shedding innocent blood. And his blood is placed on your account so that you as the guilty one don't have to shed your blood. He shed his blood for you and it covers your sin. This is an amazing act. The guilty are forgiven and go free because the blood of Christ has been placed on their account. That's the goodness of the gospel. You might sit here as a murderer with blood on your hands and the Bible's requirement is that the only way the innocent blood is paid for is by the blood of the guilty. And you say, well, then I have to give my life. I must die for my crime. No, you don't. That's what's so great about the new covenant is that Christ has paid for that sin. Trust in him. Have his blood placed on your account and you will be set free. You'll be forgiven. You don't have to die because Christ died for you. There is no better news. And the news is not this. The news is not, well, it's no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. It's, it's not that big. You know, the Old Testament, is, is, we don't follow that stuff anymore. That's not how we help people. We point them to the good news. The blood of the innocent covers the guilt of the blood of the guilty. And the price is paid. We sang it. We sang it. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. God's law is satisfied because Christ has paid the price for his children. And if you are a murderer, like David was a murderer, justice was satisfied in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will hold you fast. You can be forgiven. You can be set free. You can have that guilt paid for. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to hang your head every time you come to church. You don't have to be faced with those things because the justice of God has been satisfied. If not, if there is no sacrifice for sin, where's the justice in the world? So the very same schizophrenic society, when a baby is murdered in the womb, 
and the mother wants to keep it, what's the penalty? When there's a heinous act and someone murders a pregnant woman, they used to put them on trial for two murders because the baby died. Those laws are changing. But in a society, we still have an understanding that if you want to keep the baby and someone takes the baby or kills the baby, intentionally or unintentionally, there's a price to be paid. That's justice. So we must see justice in this. But justice is satisfied in God. Ah, it still gets better. I got more good news. Hang on here. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. He died for murderers. He died for liars. He died for the homosexual. He died for the sexually immoral. He died for the perverse. He died for the thief. He, go through the list. He died for sinners. And notice if we're trusting sinners, if we are sinners who have repented and sinners who trust in Christ, that means Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified, how? By his blood. Notice the blood. You have to catch this theologically. And because we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's blood has made us righteous. And because we're righteous, God's wrath has been satisfied in the death of Christ. No more wrath for you. It's just so good, isn't it? It's so good. No wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have already been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Next slide. More than that. Wait a second. There's more? Yes, it's the best info commercial you'll ever hear. There's more. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The justice of God has been satisfied. You have been made righteous. The wrath of God has been satisfied, and you have been reconciled. Now God is your loving Father who does not look at you through the lens of your heinous crimes, your heinous sins, whatever they may be. He looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ as his child, and he loves you, and he holds you fast, and he clings to you, and he cares for you, and he ministers to you. So all the songs we sing, we sing as murderers. We sing as adulterers. We sing as fornicators. We sing as homosexuals. We sing as people forgiven by the grace of God and set free from those sins and loved by God in the face of those sins because of what Christ has done for us. Amen. And he holds us fast. Never to be lost. Wicked people like me and you. Ah, oh, that's the message that women who have killed their babies need to hear. What fathers who have driven the mothers of their child to the abortion mill to murder. It's what doctors who have put babies to death, thousands of babies to death, need to hear. They must hear the bad news because without it, there is no good news to share. So what must we do? Last place to turn, Isaiah 1, page 721. Isaiah 1. What must we do? We must repent. We must repent. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So what happens? We come as unrepentant sinners. We come as sinners who have not confessed. We walk into a worship service, whether it be the sanctuary of God, in the, the, the synagogue, 
the tabernacle, the temple, or the church. We walk into the worship service, and we make many prayers, and we sing many songs, and we do it with hands covered with blood. And God says, if you do that, I won't hear you. I won't listen. What does he tell you to do then? Notice he doesn't stop there. He gives us the remedy. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Repent. That's what it means. You repent of your sins. And that's how you wash yourself. That's how you make yourself clean. And then after you repent, you rebuke the oppressors. You rebuke the oppressors. We'll get to that in a second. But we repent. Now, why won't we follow God's law? Why won't we implement God's justice? Why won't we implement these punishments and penalties in our own civil law? Because we, as God's people, are corrupt. Our own hearts condemn us as hypocrites if we were to act on God's law in this area. Because we have not cleansed our hands. Because we have not washed away our guilt. We face all of these things filled with guilt, filled with shame. And we understand if we were to apply God's law, we'd just be hypocrites. And so we refrain from that. And we have no cleansing effect on our civil society because we're living with guilt and shame of our unrepentant sin, even as God's people. So if we do not deal with our personal sinfulness, then our hypocrisy will keep us from following through on implementing God's law. That's why we said the assurance of pardon from 2 Chronicles 7.14. Go to that one, Gino. 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What is that? That's repentance. We must repent. If we want our land healed from the pollution, the corruption of the blood of the innocent, we must repent. Now, why would the land need to be healed? Do you know the answer now? Notice, you maybe said that we've, we've quoted this many times in our church, the, the heal their land, and, and maybe we haven't talked about it explicitly. And by coming through this, I said, oh, isn't it so clear why their land needs to be healed? Because their land is polluted with the blood of the innocent. And the land is healed through the repentance of God's people. And then after we repent, we rebuke the oppressors. We rebuke the individuals, the women, their supporters, the high priests of child sacrifice, the abortion doctors, and the evil rulers. Evil has been codified into law. It is our government that is the lawbreaker. We must be law keepers. When the law of man contravenes the law of God, we must obey God. It costs the apostles their life. At the hands of the very government they said we must submit to, they were put to death because their submission only went so far where the laws are unjust and wicked. And so here's the hard truth, church. We will suffer for doing what's wrong as a result of our sins, or we will suffer for doing what's right. We think, in today's day and age, that we can avoid suffering by finding a way to walk that thin line between standing up against the evil and wickedness of our society and appeasing people and not upsetting people and making them okay with us so that they're okay with us Christians. We're trying to find that fine line where we don't suffer by, by dealing with wickedness, nor do we suffer for doing what's right. We kind of walk that fine line. Notice there's not a third choice here. As God's people, we will suffer. God's word has promised it for many reasons. We will suffer for doing what's wrong and not implementing these things in our society and facing injustice and facing wickedness and taking a stand, or we will suffer for doing what's right. So, 
Are you up for suffering? You better be if you're God's children. So which way do you want to suffer? I want you to hear me clearly. We are suffering in the state of Michigan because we did what was wrong. We are suffering for our wrongs. And if we continue to do wrong, we will continue to suffer more and more as God's people. You say, well, if we stand up for, for, for truth, if we take a stand publicly, it might cost me my job, it might cost me my family, it might cost me uh, prestige, I might get booted from Facebook, I might lose, I might lose whatever, I might lose everything. If we continue on this path as God's people, it's going to happen either way. So trust God and do what's right, and maybe that suffering won't be as bad if we do what's right. I don't know. No promises here. But I would rather suffer for taking a stand for Christ than to suffer for my apathy and my silence and watch this nation and watch this state go down the tubes. It's already there, and it's because of us. Not because we're the ones actually doing the things most of the time, but because we have stayed silent and not done what God has called us to do. We are suffering, and we say, how long, O oh Lord? Why will you continue to let us suffer? He says, when will you stand up and live for the truth? And notice how long, O oh Lord, comes from the saints robed in white in heaven who gave their lives for Christ, and they say, how long, O oh Lord, before you bring your justice for our innocent death? Yeah, we want how long, O oh Lord, do I have to suffer without dying? I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you all the way on that. But we cannot stay there any longer. I don't know what that means. We pray for God's wisdom. We pray for personal understanding. We pray for a place to take a stand. And I'm, I'm hearing stories. People are talking to me. They're saying, well, I had this chance. I thought I had an opportunity to say something, and I was going to stay silent. But after you preached that sermon last week, how could I stay silent? Praise God. Not because I had anything to do with it, but because God's word is at work in convincing us and encouraging us to do what's right despite the cost. If there's any hope, it's going to come from revival. And the only way our nation and our state and our community finds revival is through the gospel preached with clarity, giving the bad news and the good news from God's people faithfully. If we don't do it, nothing will change. It will get worse and worse. And your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will suffer. And all you can hope for is for the rapture to come and get you out of here before the worst comes. And if you're trusting in that, uh, just go back to the people hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, and they were hoping for the same thing and it did not come. What promise do you have? And what will, as Gino said, what will... The generation, our children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, think about us. Now, I'm not here to shame you for that. I'm just saying, what will they say about us? What will the stories be written about this generation? I've repented. Hopefully you've repented. We must stand. We must change. We must do something different if we want to see things change. And it's only by God's grace. No promises. And it'll cause suffering. Are you up for it? By God's grace alone. Father, help us. The truth is hard, it is cutting, and yet the truth is also glorious, and it brings joy and a salve to our wounds. Lord, help us. Help us. May we repent, and may we rebuke, and may we do what's right. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to end one more thing I forgot. I was going to say this. If you are struggling with a sinful choice in the past, whatever it may be, if you're, if you're struggling with the guilt, if you're struggling with the shame, if you're struggling with breaking free from sinful uh, 
uh, enslavement, sinful habits, addictions, whatever it might be called or whatever you think it might be, seek help. We want to help you through the guilt, the shame, the past, the things that weigh you down. We want to give freedom in Christ. We want to help you be set free through application of Scripture. God's Word has answers. God's Word deals with real life's problems. We don't just preach this stuff and leave you alone. Reach out. Let me know. Talk to someone. Get the help you need to deal with life so that you may walk in freedom and walk in joy, serving God faithfully without your past destroying your present. I stand and sing.